Welcome to Coach House Talks. We might have lost sight of the sea, but just in case, we are helpfully given the book of Ruth to bring it back into very sharp focus. And that's what we're going to look at today, the book of Ruth. The placement of the book of Ruth in scripture is no accident. And whilst the Hebrew order places this book actually in a different place, places it before Proverbs, the Greek canon places it chronologically as it begins with the line, Ruth 1, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel. So we're firmly placed at a place in time. Now, Steve brought us the book of Judges before, just before Easter. And we know that that was a bleak and a dark place for God's people. Their continued cycles of sin inevitably led them to a point where the book concluded with these very, very sad words and probably some of the saddest words in Scripture. Judges 21 verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king and all the people did whatever that seemed right in their own eyes. In other words, we've disregarded God totally. We've decided our way is best, that that's it. We're disregarding God's rule over us. So the book of Judges was a desperate place. And the epitaph of the book leaves little room for hope. Yet into this dark place, at the time of the Judges, is a story of redemption and promise. Whilst the book has no direct interaction from God per se, the story itself reveals to us God's character and provision for all of those who love him. Now, it's easy to be drawn into the main characters and make them the focus of the story. If you've read the book of Ruth before, you will know how this book uh, plays out. Whether it's Naomi's bitterness, and we know she's bitter because she looked back and Naomi's name backwards is I moan. (sighs) Thanks, Steve, for that one. So we might look at this book and read Ruth's allegiance or Boaz's redeeming qualities. But essentially, this book is about what God is doing through these human characters. Because when we look at what God's doing with us, we recognise when we look back that God's actually used us in circumstances. Hands up if you agree with that. That you can look back and see that God's... I didn't expect that, but God used me in this... I think we've all been there, haven't we? And during the time that we're going through it, we might not see directly that God's using us. But when we look back, we see how God's used the challenges that we've faced and everything else to reveal his character and reveal his plans for us. So whilst we can look back uh, on it and see a type of Jesus in Boaz, the book is actually about God's unswerving loyalty to his covenants regarding redemption. And with those covenants we've seen with the Noah covenant, the covenant given to Abraham, and the covenant given to Moses. And there are more to come as we go through our big picture. Now, in order to see how this works out, we have to understand a word in Hebrew that's used over and over again in this book particular. But we also need to know how God set up what's called a patriarchal system for provision and welfare. Now, this is littered throughout the entire Old Testament and, I believe, in the New. 
So we need to get our heads around how the people were thinking because it helps us understand scripture when we go through it. Many nations around this world that we live in today still run a patriarchal system. But it's one that we've become distanced from because of our reliance on the state to look after us. Okay, so if we fall ill or we fall destitute or something happens to us, we have the state system that stops us from falling, or supposed to stop us falling through the floor into utter despair. Yeah? Well, there was none of that in some of these countries. In a lot of countries today, there's none of that either. We're actually very blessed to have it, but it's actually a step away from what the biblical model is. Because the patriarchal system is this. It's based on the eldest male in the, in the family becoming the head of that family. Okay, So we will understand some of this and also head over those that come into his extended family. So marriage, etc., brought wives into the family unit where they would be cared for by the patriarchal head. Think Abraham. See, when Abraham, or rather, when his father, Terah, left Ur, he left with Lot, it says. Abraham, and there's a big list of names. It's Abraham and Lot and all the others. Because Lot was the responsibility of Terah. But when they got to Haran, where they settled, Terah died. And it says that Abraham got up to go where God had told him. And he took with him Lot. And when Lot got in trouble in Sodom and Gomorrah, what did he do? He cried out, didn't he? And who went to get him? Abraham did, because Abraham had responsibility for Lot under the patriarchal system. So you get understand how that kind of works. And the Bible will make much more sense to us when we see the lists of names and things in the Old Testament, because actually they're listing who's in charge here and where is the tribal head and who's looking after the various clans and things. In fact, the Levitical laws were put in place in order to preserve and protect the family names, and to provide for the continuance of heirs, their land, and their rights. It's one of the reasons why we see the prevalence of male names in the Bible. And this is crucial. It shows who is responsible for the families that they are the head over. These are typically family tribes. The welfare of a family was dependent upon the strength of the patriarch. But there was also a system in place to care for those who found themselves outside of it. Predominantly, we read, widows and orphans. Okay, so if you look at Levitical law, you'll find that there's provision all the time for widows and orphans, the poor and the foreigners living amongst you. You'll find that littered through the Levitical law. And this is all to do with people who have fallen out of the patriarchal system to make sure that they are covered and that they are cared for. Now, interestingly, when we get to the New Testament church in Acts and the epistles, we see lots of time devoted to looking after who? The poor and the widowed. And further, Jesus himself declared in John 14, verse 18, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, that's a general statement. Jesus is saying, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. You see, God's great plan is to provide for everyone and to bring us all into his family. We love to call church family, don't we? You ever thought why? 
because we are a family, a patriarchal family under the correct head. As a church, we understand redemption when we look at sinners coming to the Lord and being saved and being accepted into God's families. Well, the Israelites understood redemption in a slightly different way. They understood redemption as being rescued back into your inheritance or having your name rescued. So stopping your name going out of existence. In other words, having an heir, having something to carry your family name through. In some of the Bibles that you've got, you may see some of the chapters in Leviticus and Deuteronomy are labelled sometimes as redemption of land, redemption of family, redemption of rights, etc., etc. And that might seem strange to us because we go, well, we know redemption in church is just people coming and getting saved and coming to know the Lord. But redemption is a repeated theme in the book of Ruth, expressed over 20 times as we read it. And it's a theme that we are well acquainted with. Now, I said there was a Hebrew word we needed to learn. So, I'm not going to try and pronounce these things in Hebrew. But this word is hesed. Okay? And hesed means kindness, as in a covenant loyalty that God has to us. Now, remember the chairs? Remember God pursuing us, never letting us go? Okay, hesed. He never lets you go. He will be true and faithful to his covenant promises to you. It's a governing word. I am faithful to you and I will remain faithful to you because I've told you I will be. And it's a reoccurring word that we find in Ruth. Now the book of Ruth and particularly the actions of Ruth and Boaz showing Hesed is deliberately to be compared with judges. Okay? So remember, it's in the time of Judges, and it comes after the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, Hesed is not mentioned once because nobody showed loyalty to covenant promises. Nobody. People turned their back on God. Every time he sent them a deliverer, turned their back. And they spiralled and spiralled and spiralled. Out of control and out and away from God. And I don't think it's a, you know, when, usually when these books are put and there's one there to look at the other, it's to make you compare one with the other. Hesed in Ruth, all the way through. Love, loyalty, judges, nothing, despair. The book of Ruth compares the upstanding qualities and the outstanding qualities of Boaz and Ruth with what is going on around them at the time of the judges. See, Ruth is like a big picture of the Old Testament. We're doing a big picture now of the entire books of the Bible. But Ruth is like a big picture of the Old Testament. God has a place of protection and provision for his people. He creates covenant community with his creation. But man designs to walk away from it, as we've seen all the way through in all of our studies so far. Time and time again, we turn our backs, but God pursues us and offers redemption and rescue. Why? Because he continually shows hesed to us. He stands by his covenant promise to rescue you. God acts in hesed towards us. It's why he pursues us. He is loyal. Okay? When God makes a promise, he does not go halfway 
and go, oh, it's too hard this, I'm not going to follow it through. Whatever we go and whatever we do and whatever we show to God, and remember Jesus was spat upon, put on a cross, cursed and laughed at, ridiculed, but he still died for you. And he still died for the people who were doing just that. So how does this play out in Ruth? Well, we won't read it all. It's only four chapters. It's easily readable in one go. So why not have a read of it when you've got some time? And now that we're giving you some insight into what its major themes are and how it demonstrates God's provision in human circumstances, okay? So don't forget that. Sometimes we look back and we see that God's worked in our lives. When you read the book of Ruth, see how God is using human circumstances to bring about his purposes. The story starts with a man and his family crucially turning their back on God. Turning their back on God's provision and walking over the border into another country, Moab, the enemy's land. Now the reason for this was to escape a drought, we're told. Hmm, but God's a God of covenant promise. So if he says, well, I will look after you, what's he going to do? Look after you. So if you're running away from that provision, you're probably not in the right place. Because we've also got to remember that drought at the time of the judges is probably a consequence of disobedience and therefore judgment. Remember, they were going around in cycles of sin and all these things happened to them to bring them back to their need of a saviour. So Elimelech and his family, they walk away from God's provision. And this is emphasised to us by the inclusion of the name of the town they walked away from. Anyone going to shout it out? Bethlehem, the house of bread, the place of provision. Even the town says, God will look after you. And they still went, no, we're going to Moab. They walk away. Limelech led his wife Naomi and their two sons, Marlon and Kilian, and they settled in Moab. But tragically, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi with her two sons. But all is not lost, however, as she has her sons and therefore she still has the ability to retain status. If they marry, if they have children, the name of Elimelech carries on. Yeah? You get how that is all working in the patriarchal system. All is good. The family name can be protected if the girls have if the girls are marrying their boys, but then disaster, as both Kilian and Marlon also die. That's all the males gone. Where does that leave Naomi? This is an absolute catastrophe for her. She's in a foreign land. She's without a family, she's widowed, and she's orphaned from the patriarchal family she's walked away from. Are we getting this? Are we seeing how it works for us, what we do to God all the time? Her only hope is to return to Israel and hope that the Levitical system that's been set up by by her people will at least provide for her as a widow. She has no prospects of anything else. How do we know she has no prospects? Well, she urges the two wives of her two sons who she's left with, who she's now looking after, she urges them to stay in Moab. 
Don't even come to Israel with me. There's nothing there for you or for me. Stay where you are. You've got a better chance in Moab. Especially as they were Moabite women. So Ruth 1, verse 11, says these words. Naomi's saying to them, she's pleading with them. Why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who would grow up to be your husbands? That makes little sense to us, doesn't it? Unless you understand the patriarchal system. You must marry and have sons to carry on the name and therefore you'll be cared for. No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes for I am too old to marry again. So she's written herself off. She is bitter. This answer makes more sense when we understand the Levitical provision and patriarchal tradition. The daughters are outside the family and they have no means of redemption other than to wait for Naomi to have sons that they can marry. That's their only hope. But God, as we all know in this room, is the God of redemption. One of the girls, Orpha, she disappears back into Moab. But Ruth as we know many of us in this room, casts off all of her past and turns to face an uncertain future, pledging herself to Naomi, her people, and crucially, her God. She says, it's almost like us turning our back on the world and getting saved and saying, I'm having nothing to do with that. I'm only going to follow God's provision. And that's kind of what Ruth does. She says, no, I'm going to stay with you, Naomi. I'm going to look after you. I'm going to stay with you to the bitter end and I'm going to turn my back on everything that I've known in Moab and I'm going to come with you across the border into a foreign land that I know nothing of and I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to be with you and more than that, I want your people to be my people and your God to be my God. What do we do when we get saved? We say, I don't want that, I want this and we turn around and we leave our past behind. Now on the return to Jerusalem, Ruth, also to Bethlehem, Ruth goes out and gathers fallen wheat stalks from the edges of a field which is provided for, again, in the Levitical law. All fields were to have areas around the edges for the poor, the widows, and the foreigners to avail themselves of. So if you've got nothing, you can at least traipse around the edge of a farmer's field and pick up stuff that's left on the floor. And the law provides that for you. In other words, there's an instruction that says, don't get it all up. Don't put it all up in your, in your wheat sheaves and everything. Leave what you've left for the poor to pick up. Deuteronomy 24, 19. When you are harvesting your crops and you forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigners, orphans and widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. Foreigners, orphans and widows. Well, Ruth's a foreigner. She's also an orphan. And Naomi's a widow. And an orphan from the patriarchal family. So provided for in Levitical law. And the, the field that Ruth finds herself in just happens to belong to this guy called Boaz. A relative of Elimelech. Yeah. What's the chances of that? If you look back in your life, you will see that God has instituted lots and lots of things in your life to bring you to a place where you are. 
So now that we understand how the family system works, the introduction of Boaz as what's called a kinsman redeemer makes much more sense. See, the law provided for a widow to be remarried into the family line in order to protect names, land, and inheritance. Now, you can read all about those protective practices in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I dare you. So here is an unmarried member of Elimelech's family that is available to redeem Ruth. Redeeming this circumstance, meaning to bring her back into a family. But not only that, at the same time, rescue Naomi. It's just like, let's sit back and watch God in action. It's, it's one of those books, you kind of go, this is amazing. And it's such a straightforward story through it that you can't help but be impressed by the way that God works with us and through us. Boaz appears, introduces himself and provides food for Ruth and Naomi. Now we may ask what it is that Boaz sees in Ruth. In fact, I ask myself this question, why does, why does Ruth stick out to Boaz? What makes her so special to him? Why is, she, why is he even taking notice of her? Maybe she was gloriously good looking. Maybe she was the most gorgeous woman around. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us that. But I do know this. Have you noticed who Boaz's mother is? Come on, be brave. Who's Boaz's mother? Rahab. Right, okay, and where have we met Rahab before? Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho that Jamie taught us about when we looked at Joshua, who saved the spies and was brought in to the family, is the mother of Boaz. And you can read that in the, these are the words I can't say, Jamie, I can't say genealogy either. Or, or, or what the other one is, linear, lineage, lineage. <laughs> and we see them in the names, don't we? We see Rahab, we see Ruth in there. So Boaz is well acquainted with God's welcome for foreigners. For he is a product of that kindness. It's that word again, hesed. He's a product of covenant promise. So it's no surprise that he looks after and sees quality in Ruth that perhaps others don't. And when Naomi finds out whose field Ruth has been collecting from and under whose protection she's found herself, Naomi formulates a cunning plan. And I think it is a cunning plan. Have a bath. Not you. Ruth, have a bath. Although some of you probably do need a bath. Ruth, have a bath. Put on some perfume. Take off your grieving clothes and put on your best frock, your best dress. And after Boaz has had a hard day's work and he's crawled in the corner and is asleep, go to him. Go to him. Uncover his feet and lie there with him at night. Now this all seems like something out of a steamy Mills and Boone romantic novel. 
Anyone that's laughing has read a Mills and Boone romantic novel. I've never have. But here is where Boaz and Ruth show their hesed. Kindness, integrity to each other. So much so that Boaz is described as of noble character and Ruth as virtuous. You see, Ruth takes this opportunity not to have sex. And let's make no bones about this. Naomi was saying, go and have sex. And she didn't. She uncovered his feet and she asked Boaz to redeem her. Marry me. Bring me into the patriarchal family. They are a match made in heaven. Now, as an aside, this imagery, this bit about lying under the corner of Boaz's blanket or covering, was synonymous with being under the protection of. So it's asking for protection or being under the wing, belonging to. Hence, Boaz's realisation that Ruth was asking for marriage. The picture is even more complete when we read poetic words such as Psalm 61, verses 3 and 4, because this will ring true for us. For you are my safe refuge, talking about God, a fortress where my enemies cannot reach me. Let me live forever in your sanctuary, safe beneath the shelter of your wings. Because we realise that this is our place of refuge in the protection of God. That's where our refuge is. You can go outside that refuge if you like, but my protection is in and under the, the refuge that God has provided for me. My protection is there. Now in the story, there's a small matter of someone who's a little closer related to Boaz, who should have first claim on redeeming her, or redeeming Ruth in fact. So Boaz, being a man of noble character, um, and unlike the people around him at the time of the judges, he acts in a way which is honourable. He seeks out the closest relative and offers him the chance to redeem Naomi's land. Now at first this seems like a great offer for him. Win-win. I get loads of new land and I get a pretty wife. But when he realises that the daughter-in-law, Ruth, would also be part of the package and marrying a Moabite woman would probably endanger his own estate, he quickly backs down. No. If you want to redeem her, you do so. Because I'm protecting my own interests. And the transaction is sealed by the giving of his sandal to Boaz. Which literally means, I will not set foot on your land. That's what that transaction means. And with that, the story of redemption becomes complete. Ruth 4, verses 9 and 10. Boaz says to the witnesses, You are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian and Marlon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Marlon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. See, now we know a little bit more about the patriarchal system. That makes more sense, doesn't it? It's about redeeming the name, the inheritance and the family. But the story 
doesn't end there. As the book began in tragedy and despair, just like the end of Judges, the ending is one of joy and restoration. As Ruth becomes pregnant and delivers a boy, Obed. Ruth 4, verses 13 and 15. Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his, became his wife. Now, I said before that, that Ruth was virtuous, that when she went to Boaz, that Naomi intended to have sex. And lots of people said, well, that's what it means, uncovering the thing, and he, she just had sex. It doesn't mean that at all, because we read here at the end in chapter 4, when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. Well, she's telling us that they didn't sleep together previously. She just lay under the protection of his blanket. Slept with her, he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. And one of the reasons for the placement of the book of Ruth in our Bibles is as a literary tool to bring our attention to the lineage of the king to come, King David. The book ends with this family tree, a tree that brings hope in the midst of despair and relays to us the real purpose of God's plans and use of man's circumstances. Ruth 4, from verse 18. This is the record of their... I told you I can't say it. I have to forget it. This is the genealogical record of their ancestor, Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Simon. Simon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. Remember God's promises? So dark and despair at the time of the end of Judges. And then even in that time, God's saying, no, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you how I'm going to save you, how I'm going to redeem you. And the book of Ruth also heralds in at this point because of this, another change in God's rescue plan for his creation. A promised king, a promised rescuer from the line of David. So in order for this to happen, the tribes of Israel were to come under the kingship and regal headship of a king. One that God had uniquely intended, but that man so badly misunderstood. I hope you can see the picture of what is being painted. We talk about patriarchal families. Jesus, when he talks to his disciples, teaches them how to pray, doesn't he? And we always go, oh, well, that's just the order of how we pray. Apart from the first line, our Father who art in heaven. Think about that. Our Father, think about it as a patriarchal system person would think about this. Our Father. See, you're moved from one 
area of patriarchal society and into another. You transfer your rights to Jesus. You come under the headship, the patriarchal headship of God. That's why we call ourselves family. We are family as church and church is such a a massive deal for God. Church is so important because it's part of your patriarchal family, your lineage, your connection to God, your Father, who has redeemed you. We're sons and we're daughters, we're told. We are heirs. We've come into promises that we shouldn't have. But we've come into them because God continually shows hesed to his creation. I love my creation. I love you all. The ultimate king, our kinsman redeemer, is Jesus. He rescues us and he gives us back the inheritance that we lost when Adam sinned. You see, the big picture is still being acted out. Still alive today. God's covenant promises come into fruition despite man's disloyalty and sin. Jesus has paid the price to redeem us. As we read earlier in John 14, 18, no, says Jesus, I will not abandon you. I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. And Jesus did just that to bring us back into relationship with God. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.